From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy on the campus of Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam, and this is Democracy Works. Chris, we're going to talk about Brazil today. Yeah, um, really, uh, again, topical subject that is part of our ongoing series to kind of expand out and see what's going on in the world. And today we're uh, talking to uh, Gianpaolo Beocci who is a uh, Brazilian and an expert on uh, uh, democracy. So it's a really good person to bring in for this topic. Yes. Brazil is still one of the largest democracies in the world, I think the fourth largest democracy in the world. And um, up until, I think, 1985, it was a military police state, right? And so, yeah, you're right. The, the ex- institutions of democracy are not well established. The culture of democracy isn't there in the way it is in some European countries mm-hmm. or in the United States. But, but we are seeing some similarities to these other democracies. We see uh, you know, economic, economic struggles with severe inequality. Mm-hmm. We see some conditions that are similar to what we've seen in some of the European countries mm-hmm. we're looking at. Uh, a country in economic turmoil uh, with uh, severe inequality. Uh, some different patterns of support here, though. This is not the kind of rural, urban conflict that we've seen in a lot of other countries. No, I mean, you know, and you could say that about about the United States, too, because, you know, in addition to this economic, you know, tumult, um, there's also this kind of populist response. But, and, but more and more evidence that in the United States, politics are dividing along urban, rural lines. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That's true. And so I think, you know, one of one of the things we want to do is just kind of, you know, compare these different circumstances because there are some things that are, you know, dramatically similar. And there's also some distinctiveness. And, and they're both interesting and, and relevant to figuring out what's kind of going on at, on a worldwide basis. Right. And, and the fact that he's referred to as a Trump of the tropics, yes. of course, takes you into a kind of... Uh, an, an emphasis on the on the individual rather than some of these more institutional factors. Yeah, I, I think that's right. But I also think, I mean, maybe not so much in France, but certainly in in Hungary and uh, in other countries, you do see this kind of, you know, populist movement um, spearheaded by and personified by one individual. All right. Well, let's let's learn more about Trump of the tropics. Yeah. Uh, by turning to our to Jenna and our guest. Sounds good. This is Jenna Spinelli here today with Gianpaolo Beocci. Gianpaolo, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So we're going to talk with you today about the state of democracy in Brazil. And Brazil kind of came onto our radar here in the McCourtney Institute after Bolsonaro's election at the end of last year. But, you know, the more I've kind of been reading about Brazil, it seems the country has had somewhat of a tenuous relationship with democracy throughout its history. And I thought that that might be a good place to start um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, how democracy has worked or maybe not worked in Brazil throughout the country's history? Uh, what are what are some of those trends and how do they set the stage for the current environment? Oh, oh, thank you. Great question. So as you say, Brazil has had this uh, relatively short and checkered history with democracy. And I think from the time it became a republic uh, in the late 1800s, 1889, one of the defining features of Brazilian democracy has been that it's, a, it's been a very unequal country. Uh, Brazil was the last country to abolish slavery in the world. It has had very unequal land tenure patterns. And so Brazilian democracy has always been marked by this tension between the formal equality that comes with democracy and the very real, very harsh inequalities 
And throughout the country's history, people have made democratic claims or claims on democratic institutions for redistribution to make democracy more substantive. And that has always caused a pushback. So one way, you know, most recently in 1964, Brazil had a military coup that lasted, we had a military regime that lasted until 1985. And a real driving force there was that in the early 1960s, there was a government that was talking about uh, redistribution. And so Brazil becomes a democracy in the mid-1980s, a sort of very important part of the history that we don't talk about often enough, was that social movements really played a very important role in the transition to democracy, but also in helping build the institutions of democracy. So Brazil's constitution of 1989, 1988-89, has some very progressive elements in it. It has things about uh, direct democracy. It has gestures at participation. Municipalities have a lot of power. So social movements play this very important role in, in building institutions. And social movements really were behind very important reforms that have taken place since the 1980s. And right. social movements then morphed into uh, political parties and players in institutions. And so by the time you get to the 2000s in Brazil, you have the election of uh, Lula, who was a, a former union leader, uh, had been in prison and everything. They carry through a number of important uh, reforms. And the 2000s was a bit of a golden decade in Brazil. And this is the World Bank's view uh, in that there was plenty of economic growth and there was a lot of redistribution and there was a kind of more inclusion than had been the case before. So, you know, if you look at something like university students, the number of university students doubled between 2003 and 2010, uh, numbers of people in the formal job market increased. It was a very uh, successful income transfer program that bought, brought a lot of people out of poverty. So where we are today is, in my view anyway, a period of a, a very strong backlash against all of that. Uh, Brazilian institutions were never that strong begin with, the political system was not reformed during the Lula era. Uh, there was certainly corruption in the political system. And there was a sort of anti-corruption movement that then morphed into a very, very harsh sort of right-wing anti-redistribution sentiment. So by the time we get to Bolsonaro's election, we get a, a candidate who's against democracy. So I think we're certainly going to come back and talk more about Bolsonaro. But I want to go back to what you said about social movements um, kind of leading to this period of democracy that started in the 1980s. Uh, where did those social movements come from? And what was it um, maybe that didn't lead to those movements transitioning into stronger parties or stronger institutions within Brazil? Yeah, so the, the social movements in Brazil, uh, an important part of this story is that the old left in Brazil and the more the traditional left had been essentially decimated or exiled. So the social movements that come about in the mid-1980s, so you have urban movements, you have the movement for the right of transport, you have movements against poverty, you have student movements, you have a lot of movements tied to the progressive church, so kind of liberation theology, 
We have movements, uh, very important of patients, uh, users of the health system is a very important movement at the time. So when Brazil transitions to a democracy, all these movements found themselves in this position like, well, we were against a dictatorship, uh, but what are we for? And they spent a lot of time in, in Brazil's history, if you look kind of, if you zoom in to cities or you zoom in to specific policies, really from the mid-1980s through the 2000s, there's a lot of experimentation with movement ideas. You know, Brazil, for example, has had a very, very successful HIV uh, campaign. Uh, and that was with social movement ideas, this uh, a very successful literacy program that comes from movement ideas. Um, and so as these movements, you know, people graduated in a way from being protesters to being represented and competing in the political system to winning office. And I think one of the one of the things people are thinking about today, you know, where where did things not go far enough or where did they get stalled, really have to do when these the political party, the Workers' Party, winning national office in the 2000s, the electoral game became, the political game became very different. So, you know, really inexperienced people arrived in Congress. Congress in Brazil is very, very corrupt. There's payment schemes. There's a lot of political parties. At any one time in Brazil, there's 30 or 40 political parties where people are essentially creating favors all the time. And... One of the things when the, the Workers' Party arrived in power was this idea, well, we have to govern. We have to keep everything going. We have to deal with investor confidence. And it, in, in a way, it was a bit shy as far as making some of these really important changes to the political system, for example, so that in many ways, uh, by the late 2000s, People who had people were behaving like regular politicians in a way. The sort of logic of this corrupt system, in, in many instances, unfortunately, won. Uh, so the reform of the political system was something that they didn't sort of feel they had the muscle to do. Uh, and of course, the more conservative elite forces had always been against it. It's also interesting to think about Bolsonaro in contrast to countries like Hungary or Turkey, where this rise of an authoritarian leader is often framed in terms of immigration or preserving a national identity, these types of things. It seems in Brazil, it's more, as you say, kind of a reaction to corruption. And maybe as Donald Trump likes to say, a law and order type of appeal. Um, trying to restore law and order. So can you talk about uh, what who Bolsonaro is and what Brazilians saw as his appeal? People are going to be talking about the Bolsonaro phenomenon for a long time. You know, he is mostly known, he's been a politician for a long time, and he's mostly known for shocking statements. Uh, people have looked at his record, legislative record, he actually managed to pass very few bills and he's been kind of like this talk radio sort of guy who likes to say provocative things about rape, uh, about affirmative action, you know, sort of anti-political correctness has been his, his, his persona. And when Brazil had this political crisis uh, that engulfed the system, you know, leading, beginning 2013, leading to Dilma Rousseff's uh, impeachment, 
there was this a bit of a political vacuum because on one hand uh the the workers party was a bit caught up in the scandal so bolsonaro comes on as a kind of like outsider candidate you know his platform is law and order uh it's about god uh it's against political correctness um and it's pro business so you know he definitely has the elite support in brazil but brazil's a unequal country where you know that won't go very far so a very important part of his electoral coalition uh were poor and working class people who were swayed by his law and order discourse you know brazil has been very very violent for many years i think the latest figures are something like 50,000 homicides a year and you know he doesn't necessarily have a solution you know he wants to shoot criminals and he's against too many human rights and this kind of thing but in some way it touched some some people's sentiments his religious you know uh, sort of appeal to conservative catholics and evangelicals so it was it was a kind of uh anti-left politically conservative but pretty heterodox coalition of people that voted him in So Brazil obviously has this history of military rule as well and what has Bolsonaro's support been from the military and how does that factor into the picture here Yeah so I I very much uh, I think the military factor is an is an important one so that we and we can talk about the Trump uh, comparisons, but which I think are actually very, very apt. Um, so, Bolsonaro himself uh, is a, is a veteran, not a very high-ranking veteran, and he stacked his ministries and his cabinet with uh, many military people. Uh, the number of former military people who were elected this election for military and police was also very, very high. And he definitely, you know, to call him an apologist of the military dictatorship is 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 not fair. He is an admirer openly uh, of torture, of the things they did. You know, he has statements in the past about, you know, they should have killed more. Uh, torture works. If it doesn't work, you have to apply it harder. And he has these little sayings, uh, human rights for right humans only in this kind of stuff. But I, I think... Actually, one of the things people speculate about in Brazil is how much support he actually has from the military. So the military has essentially been an unreformed institution since the dictatorship. It's very powerful, but it's in the background somehow. High generals very seldom speak uh, publicly. And there is some... There is some feeling in Brazil, and I don't think it's unjustified, that the, some high members of the military might be skeptical of him, partially because you know he's undignified and he's a bit of a clown. He was never a high-ranking official anyway, and his one of the one of the contradictions of his cabinet, and I suppose this is kind of like a Trump element too, is that the his his policies are going to be a mix of nationalism and privatize everything free market. The man in charge of, of the economy, Paulo Guedes, is a big admirer of the Chilean experiment. But those things don't add up. And 
we we have a feeling that people in the military are more attuned to national sovereignty. They might be more protectionist. They're worried about Brazilian industry. So I, I think the support of the military is assumed and it's tacit, but I, I think there's good reason to wonder how deep it is. So Bolsonaro has been called the Brazilian Donald Trump, Trump of the tropics, uh, all of these these types of, of nicknames, um, maybe more so than any other of these authoritarian leaders that are rising up around the world, been directly compared to Donald Trump. Why is that? What is it about him that draws people to connect him so closely to Trump? Partially, he fashions himself in a, in a Trump uh mold. His son likes to wear a Make America Great hat. They had a Make Brazil Great kind of slogans. He is he presents himself as an outsider who isn't. He has a kind of he's he sounds populist on some issues. Uh, you know, we need to stop affirmative action and we need to uh, stop all these special rights for minorities. But he is very much a uh, a free marketeer, and he he uh, endorses policies that would you know hurt the majority of working and poor people in Brazil. So he's a Trump in that way. He seems uh, like Trump to be weirdly uh, bulletproof, in the sense that Trump had manages to say things, and and it doesn't hurt his popularity as much as you think it would. Um, like Trump, uh, Bolsonaro is becoming embroiled in a in a in a in a very very ugly corruption kind of scandal involved. You know, he's been tied to uh, with very credible evidence to the death squads that operate in Rio, and you would think this would change opinion, and it, it somehow hasn't moved public opinion very much. So he's like Trump in those ways. And I would say, um, and somehow his appeal is Trump-like in the sense that when people debate Bolsonaro in Brazil, people find his off-color remarks and his extremes as, as somehow authentic. Oh, you know, that's how he speaks. He's not politically correct. You know, he's joking. He doesn't, you know, so that kind of double persona. I would say, though, from a... A Brazilian's point of view, or my point of view anyway, I worry about democracy in Brazil a great deal more because I do feel the institutions in Brazil are weaker than they are in the United States to begin with, and they've been very weakened. So, you know, it, it does feel like there are institutional checks on what Trump can do in the U.S. in a way that it feels like Bolsonaro is going to have a, a much freer hand. Right. Can you give us some examples of how those institutions have been weakened? Yeah. So one of the one of the very sad thing that has happened in Brazil in the last three or four years has been that the judicial system, the courts, begun to play a very openly political role. So the guy who's a kind of the minister of justice or a kind of super minister of justice now under Bolsonaro was the judge and prosecutor over Lula, the, the former president of Brazil who's currently uh, under arrest. And during the process of, of the prosecution and investigation, uh, this judge, Judge Moro, was very openly 
partisan in social media and releasing things. Um, and it has given people the sense that the law is just something that you use. Under Bolsonaro, they started to roll back some of the tools that the central bank has to monitor financial transactions. Um, another thing that we worry about in terms of institutions uh, is the right to political dissent. So um, there is, you know, four members of the landless movement were just indicted for being part of a terrorist organization. So there's this criminalization of dissent that people worry about. And I think finally, one of the one of the things that has happened because of Bolsonaro being elected, even though not much has happened policy-wise, it has given people a, a free license to on hate crimes. You know, the only openly gay member of Brazilian Congress has had to flee the country. Uh, you know, week before last because of threats on his life. So. It, there's a feeling that anything goes, which unfortunately is a, a part of how Brazil has worked in the past. Right. And what about the press? Is there any indication that they are serving as a check on Bolsonaro and some of these things that he's trying to do? It's interesting. This is, a, for me, one of the great unknowns as, as to what is going to happen um, in, in Brazil in, in the next few months. So the press... Up until very, up until right uh, until Bolsonaro's election, was very partisan, um, was very anti partisan in an anti left sense. So Brazil has a near, um, you know, a near total uh, media monopoly. We basically have a handful of TV stations and one very very powerful one, Global, which was aligned with the military dictatorship. We have very few uh, papers. We don't really have a strong independent press, and they played, you know, this very partisan role in trying to push Lula and, and Dilma Rousseff out. In the weeks before, right before when it seemed like Bolsonaro was going to win, the press started to act in a more independent way. Maybe there was a sense of shock in some of the editorial rooms about, you know, what have we done? Um in this last month, there has been a little more press independence than we've seen in the past from some of the papers, but so far, not much. But like I said, this is one of the one of the things that unknown. Right. Uh, there's, you know, to go back to the Trump comparison for a second, there is no New York Times and, and Washington Post equivalent in Brazil that is keeping this, uh, you know, an eye on the presidency and on the institutions, unfortunately. Yeah, and there's also been this kind of huge social media push there too, right? I, I don't know about necessarily misinformation in the same way that we saw here in the U.S., but definitely spreading all of these Bolsonaro-esque messages. Is that right? Yes. So uh, social media and, and fake news were a huge part of this election, in particular WhatsApp. Uh, an investigation a few days before the election itself revealed that uh, foreign money and, and industrialists had paid for all these bots to repeat these fake news. Um, you know, I'm on WhatsApp groups with family in Brazil, and you know, every day I was getting a dozen different, very strange, very crude fake news types of messages. Ones that were 
designed to play on people's basest sentiments. You know, one of the stories uh, that was circulating on WhatsApp was that a secret plot of the Workers' Party should uh, Fernando Haddad be elected was to have um, gender reassignment surgery done during the day in primary school. So you drop your child off and they've had their gender reassigned because of some left-wing teacher. You know, very, very crude, but a, a huge volume of them. And when we've, we've spoken to people who were doing frontline campaigning and canvassing and stuff, you know, we don't know exactly how much it moved the electoral result, but they became part of, of the conversation. It was a huge problem. And I think from point of view of democracy in Brazil and in the continent, uh, the lack of regulation and accountability of some of, of, some of these uh, platforms like WhatsApp and Facebook is a real problem. Do you have any sense of how Bolsonaro is playing throughout the rest of Latin America? Is there concern that he is a factor and this kind of trend of authoritarianism will spread to other Latin American countries? Definitely. He's, you know, Brazil is the, is the largest country in the region and one of the most economically important ones. And it, from conversations in people in other countries, it feels like, you know, the, the balance of the continent has definitely shifted. All eyes are in Venezuela right now uh, at the moment and seeing what happens there. You know, early on uh, in his campaign, Bolsonaro said he would be for military intervention and this this uh, this type of thing. But I, d I don't think that's actually going to happen. But to answer your question directly, um, yeah, Bolsonaro's election does feel like it. the, the region has definitely turned right and turned authoritarian in a, in a very real way. We've talked a lot about Bolsonaro's appeal and how it's not really as focused on immigration as it is in some of the other countries around the world. But is there a sense among Bolsonaro supporters that they're working to support or they're supporting him because they want to preserve some type of shared national Brazilian identity? Yes, I think that's that's a very central part of the appeal. And I think the comparison to other countries uh, and other other sort of right populist movements is really apt in this case. You know, in contrast to the talk of immigration or Islam, uh, the Bolsonaro nationalism is about recovering Brazil from political correctness and recovering Brazil from the sort of leftism. So trying to present the years of the 2010 teens, which were Lula left office, who was a very, very popular president, trying to reframe that as Brazil was on a socialist path to becoming Venezuela, and this was a, a kind of long-term plan that leftists had, and really distorting uh, some elements of Brazilian culture. One of the parts of the Workers' Party programs and platforms ha has been a, about advancing kind of different forms of recognition that would register like identity politics in the United States. So uh, there's recognition, you know, of sexual diversity in public schools. There's uh, talk about transphobia. Uh, there is talk of recovering re returning land so this descendant of slaves as i've and as i think i've mentioned there was a, a lot of 
very high number of students in universities through affirmative action. And what Bolsonaro did very ably, unfortunately, was he was able to frame all of this as this kind of like elite identity politics discourse. Maybe it comes from abroad. Maybe it's part of a socialist plot. Um, but it's not really truly Brazilian. It's not really truly the people's culture. Uh, no, for sure. You know, um, and, you know, all the time, the memes and he was constantly making fun, uh, you know, of what they saw as the excesses and of this kind of talk and and how and, and often presenting it as out of touch with the real people. So in this way, you know, again, sort of Trump-like. So where do things go from here? I mean, as you started at the beginning, you know, these social movements have risen up in Brazil in the past in kind of response to these authoritarian regimes. Do you see the same thing happening again now or in the future? Yeah, I hope so. You know, uh, in the weeks before the election, as it looked like Bolsonaro was really going to win, people came together in a way that hadn't really been seen in a long time in Brazil. There is a lot of talk now about a united democratic front or a front to defend democracy uh, in the in the country. There's international solidarity efforts. I think one of the things that had been the case in the years before is that there had been a, a bit of a disjuncture between younger people and uh, more tuned to social media and the sort of older social movements. Um, and I, I think people are working to bridge those. Yeah, so I, I hope so. I think um, I think it is a bit of a race against time in some ways because some of the things Bolsonaro is planning on doing, you know, he talks about privatizing the Amazon, opening more of the Amazon for commercial agriculture. He talks, there's real reason to believe that he's the indigenous people on uh, indigenous people's lands are going to be taken away. And once those happen, that's, you know, you, you really can't go back from that. You know, I, I from the, just a, a human point of view, I'm very, very worried about what it means for a already violent country to have more people running around with a free license, with more free access to guns, uh, you know, with this acceptance of hate speech. So I, to answer your question, I, I, social movements are coming together. I hope we're able to make a difference in time before some of, some of these changes take place that, that we can't go back from. Right. I think that's a theme we're hearing from other places in the world, too. So, Gianpaolo, thank you for all of your work you've done in Brazil and for helping us learn a little bit more about what's going on there today. Well, thank you for having me on. I was listening to your podcast on the, in the ways leading up to this, and I, I appreciate all the good work that you do. So, Michael, I think what I would want to stress here is that, you know, yes, this, there's some uncanny similarities with Donald Trump. Um, but there's, there's one, I think, distinctive and important difference. Both of these individuals, both of these populist leaders um, complained about corruption and crime, right? Um, Donald Trump talks about the, uh, you know, uh, well, criminals the, coming it, over the border. But in this case, the crime wave is, is real. That's, that's right. Yeah. And, and he also talked about the deep state. And none of those, 
neither of those uh, claims in, with respect to Donald Trump have much foundation in reality. No, but they're both serving the same purpose. Exactly. And, and that is, and, and lots of studies show this, you know, that, that when people are fearful, they are more likely to accept authoritarian leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, the relationship's quite clear. Right. And, and so it's in the interest of an authoritarian-oriented leader to, uh, to scare people, right. to make them fearful, and then they're going to, they're going to accept uh, uh, more dramatic actions, more draconian actions. I, I, I totally agree with everything you so just that, said. So that playbook is the same. I get it. But if I lived in Brazil and I knew what the murder rate was, I'd be a little upset about that too. And I'd be looking for the government to make some changes. Now, would I want an authoritarian? No. But the idea that they would be indifferent to this or indifferent to the corruption that has you know, basically put the entire past <laughs> administration in jail, I wouldn't be indifferent to that either. So, I mean, I can understand and appreciate the, the um, anger, right, on the part of your average Brazilian. Yeah, and, and I think it helps to explain why they're ready to support something. I agree, like, like I agree. That. The other thing that I think is interesting is, once again, we're seeing this discontent uh, driven by as a sine qua non, this economic crisis, right? I mean, that, um, he said that this is the worst recession in Brazil's history. They're just coming out of it. Yeah, but, but also similar to what we've seen here, it's a kind of populist appeal in difficult economic times. But in, in both cases, you, you don't see populist economic policies. Yes, that's right. That's very interesting. And the same kind of, kind of strange coalition of the very wealthy and the very poor. Right. Well, they know. maintain their support by not promoting populist economic mm-hmm, policies. Mm-hmm. And I think that's another important way in which they're the same. I mean, there are others that are, that are sort of part of this, uh, you know, presentation of self, this anti you know, against uh, against political correctness mm-hmm, and the mm-hmm. and the insistence on being as as I guess politically incorrect or as gross as you can. Right, right. And apparently that doesn't have any negative effect, right? Because the people yeah. who don't like you, you're not going to make them dislike you anymore. And the people who like you, it's it's fine. They don't right. pay any attention. To yeah, it. it seems to have a similar sort of appeal. And so, you know, for all, I mean, the differences in this case kind of melt away. And what you see is the same kind of thing, that someone, a, 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 a shrewd politician, sees the opportunity here and um, conveys this, I'm the guy, I'm going to solve this. I'm going to bring it back to the way it was and make you feel better about yourselves and about your culture. Mm-hmm. But but I guess like uh, like many in the United States, uh, our guest sees sees uh, hope in in what in democracy and social movements and in uprising from the streets. Well, I do. I have read a couple articles. I mean, you know, neither one of us are experts on Brazil, but I have read a and number this, of people. This is obvious. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, that's true. It is obvious. It, it's it's. It's always usually under the surface, but in this case, it's just right out there. Um, But these folks who know much more about this than you and I say that, you know, we shouldn't undercut or shouldn't um, so discredit these institutions in Brazil with respect to democracy and with respect to civil association. The, you know, once again, Facebook is both... The, or in this case, it's WhatsApp. Yeah, you but it's WhatsApp? Yeah, and I have no idea what it even is. Yeah. <laughs> but it's clear that it's both the villain and the hero, right? It's, it's, it's been the means by which um, disinformation, fake news. And, and it's also the way of organizing social movements. Exactly. Yeah, which we've seen it's in many countries. It's just fascinating. And, and it's, here. it's so new, so dynamic, and so incredibly powerful. Mm-hmm. And that we've seen also in all these countries. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I think there are important ways in which uh, in, in, that we should recognize and put out there in which uh, whether we want to call him, you know, Trump of the tropics or not, that Brazil is different from the United States. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, one thing I'd point to is that many of our institutions, for example, our courts are much stronger. What about the press? Well, I think the press is an important distinction, right? Because while on the one hand, you have a significant portion of the population, you know, feeling like the press is not worthy of respect and not telling the truth, as, as you do in America, in the United States, you have a press that is well-established and um, universally regarded as um, an important check on the power of politicians. Right. And you don't see that in Brazil. Yeah. In fact, if anything, in the U.S., you've really seen the rise. Of the Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And, and in Brazil, I mean, um, uh, Gio Paulo uh, talked about this. You're seeing the rise of alternative media sources like podcasts and, and other kind of new uh, mechanisms to bring news to the people in a way where they can be trusted. Yeah. I, I, I want to get out there, too, that there are a couple other similarities that I, I think are important, both to highlight what's going on here and to highlight what might be different there. Uh, one is this, you know, talk of jailing your opponents. And so we've heard some talk about that here, lock her up, mm-hmm, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. Same thing going on yeah. there. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I just, you know, yeah, the one thought I have is that he was elected when? October? Is that right? October or November. And... And, you know, everyone was, you know, kind of worried and extremely concerned what was going to happen. And, you know, the thought was when Trump got elected, well, maybe he'll rise into the office. Maybe some of this won't happen. And some of it hasn't happened. Well, some that's of it has straight never, to the institution. Exactly. It's not necessarily his. Well, it, we, you know, regardless, it hasn't happened. And it hasn't moved beyond the level of rhetoric. Mm-hmm. And it'll be interesting to see whether or not the same thing holds true with Bolsonaro, because some of this has not happened yet. Right. Well, and so point. we just don't know. It's just too early. So, Chris, let's leave our listeners with this little-known fact, okay. and that is that Brazil is the country with the second most listeners to uh, democracy works outside of the United States. What does that say to you? Well, the, being as the fact that uh, I didn't know that means that You didn't is, know that. <laughs> <You're not laughs> Which li- means it's a listen- very little known fact. You're not listening at the staff <laughs> meetings, Chris. <laughs> but in any case, I think that speaks to the fact that um, Brazilians are concerned about their democracy, yeah. interested in their democracy, and looking for... Um, what we genuinely try very hard to bring, which is an honest, accurate, responsible voice about what's going on in the world and what's going on with democracy. Yeah, well, I guess when we see how many listeners in Brazil we have next week. Well, no, whether we're 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 doing this right. (laughs) But we really appreciate you listening, and and, uh, we are in your corner. Yes, we are. Yeah. From uh, the McCourtney Institute for Democracy. I'm Michael Burke. And I'm Chris Beam. This is Democracy Works. Thanks for listening. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Penn State. Our hosts are Michael Berkman, Chris Beam, and me, Jenna Spinelli. Andy Grant is our engineer, and Mark Stitzer is our editor. Additional support comes from Emily Reddy, Shireen Stanford, Craig Johnson, and the rest of the team at WPSU. For detailed show notes and discussion questions for each episode, visit our website at democracyworkspodcast.com. 
And if you like what you heard today, please consider rating or reviewing us wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.